Now, if I were to say the name Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Conan Doyle, who would you think of? Sherlock Holmes. That's exactly what I thought you would say. Well, I learned about another word, and I would think that as well. I learned about another book he wrote this week called The Lost World. I don't know if you're familiar with The Lost World. I told Sarah about it, and she said, you mean Jurassic Park? And I said, no, no, no. This is written by the Sherlock Holmes guy. It's called The Lost World, and and I started to read the book, but I just didn't have time. I have uh, other things going on, so I watched a movie adaptation out of curiosity, and it's a really interesting movie. I would like to see the book to see where they got it wrong, because, you know, the movies never get it right, but I can tell you that it is a classic adventure tale, so it's a classic, you know, like boy adventure tale, and it's Jurassic Park mixed with Planet of the Apes, at least what I watched. That's kind of what it reminded me of. And the idea of the story is you have this professor, and his name is Professor Challenger. He's an English guy, and he goes in deep into South America, and he discovers this lost world. And it's up on this high plateau that's like super hard to get to, and up on this plateau, there are still dinosaurs. Dinosaurs still roam. There's primitive man that's fighting with these dinosaurs and trapping these dinosaurs. And, and he discovers this, and he goes back to England to, like, you know, the Oxford scholars, the Cambridge guys, and he's telling them all about this place he's discovered. They still have dinosaurs. And in the movie, he has this bone, and he says, what do you think about this? And they say, well, it looks like a really well-preserved fossil. And he said, but it's not a fossil. He said, it's a real bone, and no one believes him. Professor Challenger attempts to convince his colleagues back in England what he found, but despite his passionate efforts, they're unconvinced. They just staunchly dismiss the professor. Well, J.I. Packer claims that this scene is a good illustration of what it is like to try and convince the modern church that holiness is something they should take seriously. He says, quote, Formerly, holiness was highlighted throughout the Christian church. But how different it is today. Listen to our sermons and read the books we write for each other. And then watch zany, worldly, quarrelsome way in which we behave as Christian people. You would never imagine that once the highway of holiness was clearly marked out for Bible believers. So that ministers and people knew what it was. And pastors could speak of it with authority and confidence, end quote. In other words, friends, I want to humbly lay before you today that we have an epidemic on our hands. We have a church with a holiness deficiency. Some of you have been so inoculated with the bad medicine of Western theology that you believe holiness is optional. For a Christian. Well, yeah, it'd be great if you're holy, but it's non-essential. So I want to be clear. As we think about this passage today, if you wonder who in the room I'm talking about, I'm talking about you. I'm not talking about the person sitting next to you. I'm not talking to the person in the other church down the road. I am talking about you. Because Paul shows us in this passage that none of us have arrived. And we are all to pursue holiness. Every single one of us, myself included. 
though none of us arrived, I know, because I've been around the Western church, and I've been around this church, and I've been around other churches, that though we know none of us have arrived, I also know that some of us here do not care. Some of us do not care about holiness, and you are dismissing me already and will dismiss me in the car to wherever you're eating after church today. Now, while you may not verbally say, I do not care, you may not meet me in the back of the, the, the door back there and say, I do not care about holiness, your actions reveal what your words do not. And some of you are probably frustrated with that comment. You say, where is the evidence of our lack to desire to be holy? A symptom of our holiness deficiency is that we show a lack of desire to be holy when I hear more complaints about what the church provides than discomfort with your personal sin. Friends, I hear more about the programs we don't have. I hear more about the volume of the music. I hear more about the temperature of the sanctuary. I hear more about classes and programs and sermon content and hear crickets when I hear people talking about their personal sin that which they are struggling with. A symptom of our holiness deficiency. People tell me more about what they deserve than the grace they have received. I'm more likely to hear about everything the government's doing wrong and what we deserve than to hear, you know, Jesus died for me. A symptom of our holiness deficiency. We would rather argue with brothers and sisters in Christ over non-essentials than come in here on a Sunday morning and desire to be taught God's Word. A symptom of holiness deficiency is when we can fight passionately about politics, yet lack the drive to tell others about Christ. A symptom of our holiness deficiency is when we can excuse our bad behavior, anger, gossip, manipulation, lying, and not weep over it. Just in the past weeks, I've heard about gossip coming from our church, from a person outside of our church. A symptom of our holiness deficiency is that we would rather advocate for our rights than outdo one another in showing honor as Christ commands. A symptom of our holiness deficiency is we do not believe that knowing Christ is the supreme goal of our life, not by our actions. Our actions show that the supreme goal of our lives is comfort, fat bank accounts, pleasure in worldly things, rather than pleasure in the one who died for us. Friends, we have a holiness epidemic in the church. But despite our current illness, be encouraged, because we are not the first to receive this diagnosis, and if the Lord tarries, we will not be the last. There's a cure in God's Word, and let's see what Paul had to say to the church. If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Philippians 3. Philippians 3. We'll start in verse 7, which we looked at last week, but so that we have context of what we're talking about today, we'll start in 7. And then moving on to our passage. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. But I consider everything, oh, excuse me, but everything 
was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know them and know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect, but I make effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. This is the word of the Lord. May he light its, write its truth on our hearts this day. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your perfect and errant and inspired word that we may know you, we may know Christ, and how we are to live in light of what you have done for us. God, I pray that you would guard these people's ears and guard my mouth so that only your truth would remain in their hearts and anything unprofitable I might say would be forgotten forgotten before they leave their seats. God, we pray that you are glorified. Work in our lives. Humble us. Start with me. Convict. Draw us to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Christian, make every effort to live a life worthy of the gospel. Live worthy by thinking like a mature Christian. Live worthy by following the example of faithful Christians, live worthy by remembering you belong in heaven, and live worthy by standing firm in the Lord. As we've already talked about this morning with the kids, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's to promote a gospel-centered unity for the sake of advancing Christ's gospel. 
And despite his circumstances, joy saturates this letter. The word joy is used over 16 times more than any other of his letters. Because Paul finds joy in Christ, in the holy lifestyle that is worthy of his Lord. But as we've already said, he doesn't think he's arrived. He doesn't say, you know, I'm perfect now, be like me. Look, at, look back at verse 12. He says, not that I have already reached the goal or, or am perfect already, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. So we see that Paul doesn't think that he is a perfect Christian, but that he makes every effort to be holy because Christ has taken hold of him. We talked about that last week, about how we cannot earn Christ's salvation, but that Christ takes us. Christ claimed Paul as his own possession on the road to Damascus, not because of anything Paul had done, but because of what Christ had done according to his will. And Christian, you too are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you too are Christ's possession. He has taken possession of you, not because of anything you have done, not because of any merit in your life, but because of his will. In this whole entire chapter, in, in all the Bible, we never see that we are to earn Christ's merit. We are not to earn God's mercy. He says his meritorious effort is his dung. And yet, what does he say? He makes every effort because Christ called him to himself. Effort. He pursues his goal. He pursues this prized promise. And therefore, the Apostle Paul commands the church, you, you, live like this. And the first thing we see is to live worthy by thinking like a mature Christian. Look with me at verse 15. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In other words, the mature think like this, and if you think differently and you're in Christ, God's going to reveal it to you. Paul says, let all of us who are mature have a mindset to make every effort to pursue a Christ-honoring lifestyle. We are called friends to be mature in our faith. You can spend an entire life in the local church and still be immature, underdeveloped. I think that that may or may not mean that you are in Christ, but I see people who have spent a whole lifetime in the local church and are still undeveloped. You can have advanced degrees from theological institutions and still be immature. You can listen to all the right podcasts and still be immature. I'll give you a prime example of immaturity in the Western church, the so-called worship wars. What happened in the worship wars? Well, on the one hand, you had a younger group who, who wanted to listen to music that was emotionally moving, but often was theologically shallow. And then on the other hand, you had an older group that were like, I don't want to listen to that. They wanted songs from a hymn book that were, were, were comforting and that were familiar to them. Which one of them was honoring Christ in this war? I would argue neither. Neither. Neither of them were acting like mature Christians. 
It's not mature to want theologically shallow music. I got that. But it's also not mature to fight and to argue and to do unchristian-like things in the name of a hymn book. That's not honoring to Christ. We may have doctrinal reasons for both positions. I don't know, but by and large, most people were not thinking of Jesus. They were thinking of themselves. This is what I want. This is what makes me comfortable. This is what's going to make me show up on Sunday, Pastor. Give me what I want. The evidence that you have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus is growing in the true Christian faith and having a mature mindset and a worthy lifestyle. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. Live worthy of Christ by following good examples. Paul says that we are called to live up to our salvation. Have you heard anybody say, like, live up to your family name? Christian, you and I are called to live up to the mercy we have received in God. Now, some of you don't like that. I know. We don't like the idea that we're called to live up to anything. Think that undercuts the gospel. But we don't see that in God's word, do we? What we see is, is because we have been given this, do this. Live this way. And Paul himself says, live up to the gospel to which you have been called. The church is called to join in imitating Paul and other faithful believers. They have set an example for us. And we are called to live up to what we have received from Christ. Sometimes I will get people that will say that there's no value in, in reading church history. And while I believe there are many readings to study church history, one of them is if we don't know history just in general, we repeat the mistakes, right? You've heard that, right? And there's no new heresies, just old heresies packaged differently. We know the old heresies. We understand when they come around. But another reason is to be inspired by the lives of faithful brothers and sisters. Just this week, I, I heard a sermon and read a, a, a chapter in a book on J.C. Ryle, 19th century preacher in England. A lot of people didn't like him because he was orthodox and he held a doctrinal line. Uh, one, one guy said he was doctrinally solid, he was godly, and he was manly. He was an example to the local church. And we're to follow examples like that. We're to follow examples of good godly men, Charles Spurgeon's of the world, the Athanasiuses who jump in front of the Roman emperor's horse uh, to talk about orthodoxy. We're to follow good, godly, solid examples. Because there are a lot of bad ones too, right? Look at verses 18 and 19. For I have often told you and now say with tears that many live as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. What does Paul say? You know, there's one or two guys running around here that you shouldn't follow. No, he says there are many. There are many enemies of the cross. Professing Christians who deceive themselves and lead people astray. Paul says their God is their stomach. Now, what does he mean there? Does he mean they just want to eat all the time? Well, it could be. 
But most scholars say this phrase is another way of saying they have selfish motives. They're selfish. They only think of themselves. They claim to be one of you. They claim, they come in here, they sit, and and they claim to be a Christian, and they claim to want to honor Christ, they claim to want to walk worthy, but really, they just want to please themselves. Themselves is their true God. Their aim is to please themselves and enjoy life. Self-indulgence is their word. They're the I deserve people. Spend my life for the Lord? (laughs) Come on, Pastor. I deserve some rest. I deserve some recreation. I deserve some fun. Come on. Stop reading all those Puritans. These are the I deserve people. And it says their glory is their shame. These people's pride will be their own undoing. They are unteachable. They are the know-it-alls among us. They are focused on earthly things, Paul says. They are fleshly and they desire the things of the flesh. They desire the things of the world. More money, more toys, more acclaim, more vacations, more glory, more praise, more, more, more. Not about Christ, but for me. Their God is their stomach, but you, Christian, you are not called to be earthly-minded, even if it's subtle. You are not called to just simply live your life and fulfill selfish desires. You are not called to scheme to acquire more things. Don't live like this, Paul says. Don't live like them. Live like the good examples you have. And don't follow those who live like that. Follow good examples. Do not live for this world. Do not live for trinkets. Why? Because you belong in heaven. That's your citizenship if you're in Christ. If Christ has taken hold of you, as Paul says, he's taken hold of me. Look at verses 13, the end of 13 through 14. Forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prized promise of God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've forgotten all that stuff from behind. I've forgotten that past world. I've forgotten all that pleasing myself and looking at my self-righteous, look what I've done. Hebrew, Hebrews, remember all the stuff we read last week? And I reach out for that which is head. What is ahead? His heavenly calling. Look at verses 20 through 21. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there. The Lord Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. Christian, and I'm talking to those who are truly in Christ, not just Christian in name, but truly in Christ. Friends, you are not of this world. You are not made for this world, as C.S. Lewis has said. You belong in heaven. That is your citizenship. That is where you belong. And what does that mean practically? That we act according to where we belong. Do you act like you belong in heaven? Or do you act like you belong in the world? Do people say, oh, you're a Christian? After knowing you for some time? Or is that evident by your lifestyle? Because a true Christian doesn't belong in this world. He belongs in heaven. She belongs in heaven. And for us to have 
worldly desires, and I'm not talking about things we need to repent of, or that we repent of, but for us to just desire everything of the world, it dominates our heart. That's what we want. We want the world. We have a worldly ethic. We fight like the world. We desire all the same things as the world, and we speak like the world, and then say, but yet Christ has taken hold of me. Do you see the discontinuity in your claim in your life? The Philippians looked to Rome how to live. One of the reasons Paul talks about that. Remember that they were settled by retired soldiers. And they looked to Rome to see what Rome was doing to keep up with the Joneses or the, or the Romans. If Rome was doing it, Philippi wanted to do it. If they were wearing it, Philippi wanted to wear it. If they were listening to it, watching it, they wanted to be doing the same. But Paul says, don't be like that. Your home is in heaven. Your home is with Christ. You belong with Him. Your desire should be holy. You should be growing in holiness. You should be growing in holy speech, eagerly awaiting the return of your Savior, waiting for Him to come and to take you back. He has the power to transform you and to create. Stay heavenly focused. Don't boast and be in a heavenly citizen, and then live like a worldly rebel. Because your actions betray your thin speech. You are to live in a way that is in keeping with your citizenship. I am to strive to live in a way that is keeping with my citizenship, and we are together to stand firm in the Lord. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. So then, my dearly loved and longed-for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, Paul, through this letter, continues to express his love for these people. He loves the church at Philippi. Remember, he remembers when they were planted. He remembers Lydia. He remembers the Philippian jailer in Acts. He remembers all these things, and he loves these people. He calls them his joy and his crown. Remember, it's the book of joy. And he says, in this manner, and all this stuff I just said, live like this. Stand firm in this. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm by having a mature mindset and not one of an undeveloped, underdeveloped follower of Christ. Stand firm by following the example of faithful Christians. Stand firm by living like one whose citizenship's in heaven. By living like somebody who will one day spend eternity in the presence of a holy God. Stand firm by living like that. He does not say stand firm by battling with culture, by battling with folks on Facebook, by getting mad at CNN, picking unneeded fights. He says stand firm in the Lord by living a life that is worthy of the gospel, by living like a person whom Christ has taken hold of. And as one who Christ has taken hold of, friends, I have six things for you to remember about holiness. First, holiness is not legalism. Holiness is not legalism. Legalism says, I do these things so that God will accept me. Holiness says, I do these things because Christ has taken hold of me. 
You are not called to do things to earn favor with God. That has all been finished in Christ. You are saved by God's grace. Friday, the men read through several passages, and one of them was Ephesians 2, and we read in Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 4, that you are dead in sin, and a dead person can do nothing. You need to be resurrected by an outside power. And then we read, uh, I think it's 5 or or maybe 6, where he says, but God, who is great in mercy, caused you to be alive. God made you to be alive and applied Christ's merit to your life. But everyone forgets verse 10. What does verse 10 say? Verse 10 says, you are saved for good works that the Father has prepared ahead of time for you to do. So yes, you are dead in sin. You can't do anything to save yourself, and it's only God's eternal mercy from before the foundation of the world in which he raises you to new life, but he doesn't raise you to new life to have that American dream home and sit around and please yourself, but for good works that he has prepared for you to do. Just like he decided for the foundation of the world that he would call you, he decided for the foundation of the world that this is what you will do. J.I. Packer says this, holiness is always the saved sinner's response of gratitude for the grace he or she has received. Friends, holiness and legalism are not the same thing, even though they get misconstrued that way by a modern American evangelical church. Second, holiness should not lead to pride. J.C. Ryle says, a holy man or woman follows after meekness, long-suffering, gentleness, a kind temper, and the control of a tongue. So friends, if your holiness leads you to pride, if your holiness leads you to say, look at me and everything that I do, you have missed the target. You've missed the mark. You're more akin to what Paul's talked about last week than what we're talking about today. Third, holiness leads to unity. A holy man or woman does not divide the flock for vain and fickle, selfish reasons. A faithful Christian pursues love and brotherly kindness. They avoid gossip. They hate slander. They hate backbiting. Fourth, holiness is aware of temptations and avoids them. Uh, Sarah and I are reading through the same book as of yesterday, um, I'm reading it, and she's listening to it um, on, on Audible, which is really cool. But she was in the kitchen making a supper last night, and I just happened to walk in right when this quote was read in the book that we're reading. So, and I said, hey, that's in my sermon tomorrow, but I love this quote. J.C. Ryle says this, quote, He knows his own heart is like tender, a Christian, and will diligently keep clear of the sparks of temptations. Friends, holiness is avoiding temptations. Oh, you can't go to your club without gossiping? Well, guess what? Sounds like it's time to go to a new club. Oh, you can't gather with your friends without getting drunk? Time to hang with new friends. Oh, but I can't look at my smartphone without looking at pornography. Time for a flip phone or no phone. Be the cool guy that has a landline. Because Jesus said it's better for you to pluck out your eye than have the whole body cast into heaven. You must get drastic with killing sin in your life, Christian. Holiness avoids temptations. A Christian goes to war with his sin and avoids the battles they know they can't win. You can't have social media without fighting? Write letters. That's the 
And you say, that sounds extreme. That's the extreme I'm talking about. Fifth, holiness pursues faithfulness in every aspect of life. Not just the areas we like, not just the areas we're good at, but we pursue faithfulness in every area of life. I think it was Calvin, I'm going off the cuff here, but I think it was Calvin who said it would be better for a minister to break his neck on the way to the pulpit than to get up and preach differently than his life. Robert Murray McShane said, the greatest thing my people need is my holiness. That's a humbling quote for a guy. But we are called to faithfulness in every area of our life. We are called to pursue faithfulness in marriage. We are called to pursue faithfulness in church service. We are called to pursue faithfulness in our vocation, to be a good servant, to be a good friend, to be a good neighbor, to be a good church member. Every single aspect. We are called to be faithful. Six, holiness sets your heart on things above. Friends, our heart should be set on Christ and heaven. We should live our lives in view of where we'll spend eternity because this life is a vapor. Remember that we are merely but a pilgrim on earth. We are just passing through. You know, it's cliche, but right, like you heard the whole, I've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul hooked up to it or a luggage rack. We'll say that and say, yeah, and then go and live like that's the truth. Accumulating more junk for us here in this world. We are only here for a little while. We are but a vapor, and we are called to use our time to honor Christ. We are called to make every effort to walk worthy of our calling, like a mature Christian, following the examples of faithful brothers and sisters, remembering that we belong in heaven, and standing firm in the Lord. As I said at the beginning of this message, the church has an epidemic. An epidemic of professing Christians who actions show that they do not care about holiness or pursuing lives that are worthy of the gospel. Cheat on your taxes. Slander Christ's bride. Fuss about things that are largely important. Put yourself first. We live like the devil and claim that Christ has taken hold of us. Well, if you're unhappy with this claim, then I am quite happy. I am quite happy because I wrestle with holy myself. If you're unhappy with this claim, I am quite happy because I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict your heart. Perhaps you will confess your sin and repent. Or perhaps you will admit that you have not been taken hold of by Christ and that your God is the God of your stomach. As a reformer said, a sermon should a good sermon should either make a person hate their sin or hate the pastor. Repent and turn to the Lord or hate me, but be honest. Be honest, friends. Our Lord called out hypocrites and he, told, he was hated for it and he told us that they would hate us too. But I do not hate you. I desire that you would repent. I desire that you would turn from the God of your stomach and turn to my Lord because he's a good Lord. He is a good king. 
He is the only cure for your holiness deficiency. Friend, if you believe in the fire insurance Christianity, I pray that you would know the Bible busts that wide open. You cannot just pray a prayer and then live like you want. The gospel is all of us were fallen short of the glory of God. The gospel is that all of us have inherited a sin nature from our first parents and are dead in sin. And there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. But God sent forth his son at the appointed time, at his sovereign time, according to his will, according to his plan. Jesus Christ, eternally God, became flesh and walked among us. And he lived that perfect holy life that you and I cannot live. He lived it perfectly. And then he stood in as a substitute for us. He took Alan McElroy's sin on himself. Was crucified. Shed his blood. Was killed. Laid in a tomb. And three days later was found alive. Resurrected. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He conquered my sin. And is currently at the Father's right hand. He takes my sin on himself and gives me his righteousness so that I am a new creation. So that I would be new. So that you would be new if you are in Christ. Think about that word. New. Paul says, Christ has taken hold of me. And now I make every effort to live in a way that honors him. A new creation. Brother, sister, in Christ, we are a new creation. Friend that has never repented and believed the gospel, you must do that. You must turn to Christ. You must repent today. Now, turn, confess your sin, and turn to Christ. Believe He is who He says He is, for that is the only way that you'll be in right standing with Christ, with God, and be able to attain the holiness that He gives. But brother, sister, Wycliffe Church member, we are called to be mature. We are called to live up to the truth we have attained by living lives that honor our Lord. You say that Christ has taken hold of you. Where's the evidence of that? Because we are to walk worthy of our calling. God, you are good. God, you are holy, you are just, you are merciful, you are sovereign. God, you make all things new. You create according to your will. And Father, I pray that you would have your way in our church. That we would humbly pursue holiness. That you would expose our sins and convict us. And God, I pray you would start with me. Grant me repentance of, of sin and I would be humble and every single member of this church. God, help us to live holy lifestyles. And for those hearing my voice who have never repented, God, I pray that you would be merciful and call them to yourself. That they would grant no rest until they repent and turn to you. And that you would be glorified through it all. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.